Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We've begun a new study. This is now our third week. We'll be looking specifically at verses 4 and 5 today, but let's begin reading back with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's inspired word. We're talking about living hope. Living hope. This letter begins as Peter an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciple with whom we are so familiar from our study of the Gospels, is writing to these churches in what we know as modern-day Turkey. And from what we know of the background, these Christians are facing persecution, but not from the government, not yet from Rome, from Nero. Yes, the church in Jerusalem is under pressure. They're facing persecution from Nero. But the persecution from the government hasn't spread out into these regions yet. But still, these Christians face hardship because even though persecution isn't coming from Rome, it isn't coming from the emperor, it's coming from the people that they know and love and the people they see every day. The views of society stand against the views of biblical Christianity. And this letter written to these Christians 2,000 years ago is just as appropriate for us to read today. We don't stand under government persecution here in the United States of America. The governor of North Carolina isn't oppressing Christians. But as we watch the news and as we continue to live in the world that we're in, even in everyday conversations, we're coming to realize that the way of thinking of the world, the perspective of the world, is turning more and more against biblical Christianity. Now, there is a version, a form of so-called Christianity out there that meshes just fine with the rest of the world. But it's not biblical Christianity. It's not what the Bible calls us to do and to live. But Peter's writing to this church who's facing this pressure. They're facing opposition. And these first 12 verses are meant to encourage them. If you read verse 1 through verse 12, Peter does not give a single command. There is no command in these first 12 verses. He is simply here to encourage the church who's facing opposition. And so he began in verse 1 and 2 by simply pointing out to them who they are in God. He said, you are chosen. 
You are elect. God the Father in eternity past knew who you were and He chose to save you. The world is against you, but God chose you. That's encouragement. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You have grace and peace multiplied. And then when we get to verse 3, as we saw two weeks ago, Peter leads them in this praise. He calls them to follow him in blessing. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called and we have plenty of reason to praise God. That's why we've gathered here this morning. That's why we meet Sunday after Sunday, is to give glory and honor and blessing to God who deserves all praise. But not only when we gather to church on Sundays, you are to live a life of praise Monday through Saturday as well. Everything we do ought to be an act of worship to our God who has so blessed us. Then as we look from verse 3 through 12 in the com- this week and the coming weeks, Peter gives reason after reason why we should continue blessing Praising God. Last week he pointed out God's abundant mercy. That attribute of God that makes all the others sweet. The holiness of God is magnificent, but the holiness of God would be terrible if He were not merciful. Because His holiness would destroy us. But He is a God of mercy. He has begotten us again. He's caused us to be born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but He calls us to be born again. To give us new life, to forgive our sins, and to make us whole, to give us fellowship with Him. But He didn't just save us from something. He didn't just save us from our sin, from judgment, but He saved us to something. He saved us for something. And he calls it in verse 3, we were born again, we were begotten again to a living hope. A perpetual hope. A hope that never dies. And the reason we have this hope, the reason that our hope is living, that it will never die, is because our Savior is living and He will never die. Because He calls us to this living hope through The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Our hope will never die because Jesus will never die. That's plenty of reason to praise God. But we must continue. This week we pick up with verse 4. He goes on in describing this living hope, this reason to praise God. And he says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance. To an inheritance. Now, this would be encouraging to Christians who were being Despised, they were dispersed pilgrims. He calls them scattered exiles. They're nobodies in this world. They don't have a home here in this world. They just might lose everything because of their faithfulness. But Peter says you can still bless God because He's caused you to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance. 
You may lose your property. You may lose your health. You may lose your life and your family in this world. But that's okay because you who are faithful to God have an inheritance. Now Peter routinely, as we see and go through the letter, he routinely uses language that would resonate with the Jewish Christians in his audience. Many of these Christians to whom he is writing were most likely Jews because, you know, even when Paul went into a new city to preach, where did he go preach first? The synagogues. He would preach to the Jews, they would either believe or reject him, and then he would move on outwardly to the Gentiles as well. So much of many of the people in the early church were Jews. And this reference to an inheritance would certainly ring out in their minds. Because in the Old Testament, God had promised an inheritance to Israel. He had promised an inheritance to the Jews. Now what was that inheritance? Primarily, land. He promised them a country. Remember in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, He said, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house. And where's He going to go? He says, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Now that promise was reiterated and renewed with Isaac and with Jacob and it was more precisely outlined in God's word to Israel. But Israel always had a problem. They couldn't seem to keep the land. <laughs> They're still fighting over that land. Wars, invaders, captivity. You read the Old Testament, somebody's always coming and taking them out of their land. Remember when we studied Daniel, Daniel and his friends, like so many others in that time, Babylon came in and took them out of their land, carried them off to Babylon into captivity. Why did the Jews hate the Romans so much in Jesus' day? Because they'd moved into their land, taken it over. They've always had problems as long as they've tried to inhabit the land that God had promised them. Now just let me be clear, from my understanding of Scripture, I don't think you can avoid the fact that God will keep His promise to Israel. They will have their land. He will establish His kingdom on earth. You can disagree with that if you want, but that's okay. It's just in the Bible. <laughs> but what God has promised to the Christian is so much better than just the promise of a piece of land on earth. Because he says that this inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He describes the land by saying three things that it's not. And sometimes it's easier just to tell you what something is by telling you what it isn't. This inheritance is incorruptible. The inheritance that's promised to us as Christians is part of our living hope. And it's not subject to decay. It will never be corrupted. It will never pass away. Now, some of you, I don't know, maybe inherited a house from a parent or a grandparent. And maybe at first you think, oh, that's great, you know, family... 
uh, heirloom, if you will, being passed down. I get to keep this plot of land and this house, and you go in and you start looking it over, and the termites have eaten out the floor, the, the bathroom walls are rotten, and everything's falling apart, and it's worth more to you just to sell it and let somebody else deal with the problem. Because it's corruptible. But our inheritance promised in our living hope, this inheritance that's promised to us as Christians is incorruptible. Now in secular Greek, the word that he uses here was used of something that was unravaged by an invading army. Now Israel's inheritance was almost constantly at risk of being invaded and ravaged and corrupted. But our inheritance is not at risk of being looted or plundered or corrupted in any way. No one will ever break in and ruin our inheritance. No one can ever corrupt our inheritance. It can never be destroyed. He says that it's undefiled. Our inheritance is untouched by sin. It's amazing the the beautiful things that we have in this world. Especially in the part of the country we live in. You can just ride down the road and see the absolute beauty of God's creation. But has it ever occurred to you that this this world, as wonderful and as beautiful as it is, is corrupted and defiled and touched by sin? It doesn't last. Earthquakes, tsunamis ruin the things that we love. Fires, we've seen that recently here in Pilot Mountain. This world is touched by sin. It is defiled. But in our inheritance, it is never defiled. It is never touched by sin. Our inheritance from God is pure. And it does not fade away. That language is sort of the way you describe flowers. Now, you fellas, you should buy your wife flowers. You should, I'm telling you. They love it. It sounds ridiculous. They're going to die in a week. It's just spending money that seems like you're throwing it out the window. But for some reason, they love it. It really is the thought that counts sometimes. But no matter how much care I give, no matter how much I try to keep these things alive, what happens? Those beautiful colors that were vibrant and bright on the day you brought them home begin to fade. They darken. They wither. They fall apart. They lose that freshness, that beautiful look that they once had. But our inheritance will never fade away. Now, this week, especially where we've had the snow and the ice, if you have any kind of view of the mountains at all, it's, it's wonderful. And when I leave my house and I come to the end of the Haystack Road, if I turn left onto Pine Ridge, I've got a straight shot of all the Logat Mountains. And it's gorgeous. But I've seen it every day of my life. And you know what happens most days? I take that left, or sometimes I just don't even bother with the left. I don't, I don't look at the mountains, I take the right. <laughs> and you just drive right by and you never notice. 
You know, it's amazing how things happen even in our relationships. Think about your marriage. I can think to mine, like there's a time right after you get married where, you know, you get done with work and you're headed home and you're excited to go home and see your, see your wife. You walk in the door and the first thing you want to do is just lay one right on her. Give her a kiss right on the mouth. Right? Excited to see her. But then at some point along the way, and nobody knows exactly how this or when this happens, but at some point along the way, you drive home, you're thinking about all the things you did that day, you walk in the door, and there that wonderful woman still sits. And you walk in, and the first thing you do isn't walk over and kiss her, but you say, hey, what's for dinner tonight? The newness of that relationship fades away. But when you think about our inheritance, what we will have in eternity, there will never be a point where we walk by the river of life and say, yeah, that river, that's nice. There will never be a point when you're walking down a street that's made of gold and you say, "Eh, yeah, whatever, pavement. There will never be a point when you look at the face of your Savior Jesus and say, oh yeah, hey Jesus, what are we doing today? Our inheritance will never fade away. It will never lose its newness, its freshness. It will always be incorrupt and undefiled and unfading for all eternity. Where is this inheritance? I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again anyway. How can we be certain that it's incorruptible, that it's undefiled, that it'll never fade away? He tells us here, he says, because it's reserved in heaven for you. Now, there is nothing more frustrating than to have a reservation somewhere and to walk up to the counter and they don't have your name. And you think, are you people incompetent? Can't you do your job? This is the reason we call ahead. This is the reason we have credit cards. So we have our reservation and it's secure. Of course you don't tell them that you're a Christian. You just think it. But our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. And that reservation will not be lost. You don't have to worry about your name being forgotten. It is reserved. It is kept. It is safe. In heaven for you. Our inheritance is secure because it's reserved for us in heaven. That's why Jesus gave the commandment in Matthew 6. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But what does he command instead? He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves cannot, do not break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your heart Where are your affections? Where is the thing you're living for? Is it in this world? Is it in your bank account, your 401k? Because let's just face it, this hasn't been a good week for the 401ks, has it? But where's your hope? Where is your heart? Don't lay up treasures on the earth. Doesn't mean you can't plan or put money in the bank. But that's not where your hope is. 
Your focus, your reason for living should be to lay up treasures in heaven where you will enjoy them for eternity. But you know what makes heaven so great? Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's wonderful. That's encouragement to hear, especially for Christians who are facing persecution. There's a song that you, I used to hear a lot, especially as a kid, and I've heard it a few times in the last few years. Thankfully, I haven't heard it in a while. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. That song just bugs me. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's nice to think about heaven, but there is one glaring thing missing from that picture. What makes heaven heaven? He said, I go to prepare a place, to you, place for you. Yeah, that's not where he stopped. He said, but if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know what makes heaven heaven? Jesus. You know what's going to make heaven fantastic? You know what's going to make it worth being there? Because you are with Jesus. Who cares about the mansion? Who cares about the street of gold? The big pearl that's a gate. Jesus is there. Heaven will be heaven because we will be with Jesus. The most valuable treasure in our inheritance is Christ Himself. We've got to get to verse 5, folks. A question arises for some when you think about this inheritance. When we think about heaven, when we think about the salvation that we have, I would say that most Christians at some point have to struggle with this difficulty. Here's the thing that comes to our minds sometimes. Yes, heaven is there. Yes, we have our inheritance. Yes, Jesus is in heaven. Yes, it's all secure there. The inheritance is secure. But how can I be sure that I'm going to get there? Yeah, Jesus saved me. He forgave all my sins. That's on this side. And I've got my inheritance. And it's secure. It's in heaven. It's not going anywhere. But here I am somewhere in the middle. What happens if I blow it? Especially from the perspective of Christians who face persecution. We've all wondered to ourselves at some point, how do I know that I would remain faithful if my life was on the line? Let's just be honest. Our lives aren't at risk right now and we still struggle to be faithful. For those of you who are here on, on Wednesday, we discussed 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8. We read it here this morning. And I asked you if you were confident that if you came to the end of your life, you would be able to look back and say, like Paul, I've fought a good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Would you be confident that you had been faithful? Now that's a good question. It's good for us to think about that. But that question could really easily cause some of us to despair. Because what if I'm not sure that I can say that? 
Yes, God saved us by grace. Yes, there's an inheritance secure in heaven. But what if I mess it up before I get there? How do I know that I will remain faithful to the very end? Well, Peter answers that question. It's reserved in in heaven for you, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You don't have to work and work and work and do the best you can and hope that it's enough and hope that you can finish well and that God will be pleased with you in the end. If you're a Christian, if you've been born again by the mercy of God to a living hope through Jesus, you have the promise that you will be kept, that you will be guarded. The word literally means to be garrisoned by the power of God until that day. He will keep you. How do I know that I'll still be a Christian tomorrow? How do I know that I'll still be a Christian in five years, 25 years, at the end of my life? How do I know? Because I am kept by the power of God. So, now, does that mean that we can continue in sin, that grace may abound? God is forgiving. He has grace. Can we just do what we want and not worry about it? We don't have to work. We don't have to share the gospel. We don't have to make disciples. We just live our lives. If you want to do something, yeah, it might be a sin. Go for it. God's full of grace. You'll get there either way. He's kept you. Paul answered that question in Romans 6. He said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Certainly not. He told the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you don't work for your salvation. God gives you salvation as a free gift by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you are saved, you are called as a Christian to work out your salvation. What God has done in you, you put it into practice in your everyday life. You have to work. If you're a Christian, you're commanded to be faithful. But listen, you're not on your own. Because he says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Yes, you work, but don't forget, it's God who's at work in you. You can't do it on your own. He spoke in chapter 1 verse 6 of Philippians of being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If God has saved you by His grace, if you've trusted in Jesus, you can be sure that you will make it to the very end because God is at work in you. You are kept by His power. You will be faithful. Because you have the Holy Spirit. Peter says, you are kept by the power of God through faith. Faith is not a work. Sometimes we make faith into a work. We think about, oh, I need to have more faith. I've got to work hard as a Christian so that I can have more faith. I need to muster up faith in myself to be a better Christian. 
Faith isn't something that you can muster in your own strength. Faith is a gift from God. You know what faith is? Faith is simply trusting in what God has promised. It's just trusting Him. God has promised that you will be kept, that you will be guarded by His power. That happens through faith. When he says that happens through faith, he means that it happens as you simply rest in his power. I believe that that chair right there can hold me. It has power to sustain my weight. My faith is demonstrated when I just sit down in it. Is that a work? No, that's rest. You rest in God's power. He has said that He will keep you. He keeps you through faith. You simply rest in His power. Yes, you work, but you work out of that rest. You persevere in faithfulness. Yes, you work, but you do it as you rest in the power of God and the promise that He will keep you until that day that you reach your inheritance in heaven with Christ. Does that encourage you? It surely would have encouraged these Christians. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to make it to the end. You be faithful. You work. As you study and read God's Word and you understand His commandments and His calling on your life, you just do it. But you don't do it trying to earn God's favor or to give yourself special status in His sight. Friend, let me tell you, if you've been saved, you're already number one in His eyes. You have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, He doesn't see you in all your filth and sin and faithlessness, but He sees the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus. And you work out of that. You work in that rest. Can I leave you with two passages of Scripture? Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jude finished his letter this way in verse 24 and 25. This is our praise. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever Amen. Would you stand as we pray? God, we praise you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have shown us abundant mercy. You have caused us to be born again to a living hope. To an inheritance that's secure, will never go anywhere. And not only is our inheritance secure, but we are secure. We who have repented of our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ alone are secure. 
We are kept. We are guarded by your power. Help us to rest in that. May we be faithful as we depend on your power and forever give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.